Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Scott Adams, who is the absolute persuasion master king at the 3D level of the world of persuasion, which is awesome. So you're going to hear from the legend he is. Uh, also the author of Win Bigly, How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big, and Dilbert. Mate, that was a, this is the third time we record the intro, and every time it gets bigger. <laughs> but he is the king, 3D chess, the master. Uh, awesome stuff. Love to talk about... Uh, persuasion and love the love the book absolutely love the book didn't intend to interview him when we recorded the episode but a cheeky little twitter message got him over the line and jumped on yeah we got him so we obviously speak a lot about persuasion and we bring it down to the to the average joe level you know how you can use it yourself and how trump used it and we try to um milk a few conspiracies out of him but which he, he didn't really talk about too much <laughs> uh there was about 20 to 22 minutes in it got deep into politics and i, I, I was not aware of the, the context there but uh either side of that then i thought that was phenomenal yeah. absolutely legend of a dude i reckon if you yeah need to get your eyes around this persuasion stuff very important very applicable to all facets of life yeah he says at the very end in the world of persuasion once you realize that if you take your Girl, a girl to the movie, she's <laughs> more likely to, to sleep with you or something. He said, you know, I think you're putting your own spin on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, you don't see the world the same after seeing that kind of persuasion. Also known as ma- manipulation to some, depends who you ask or what filter you're in, I guess. Oh, mate, I absolutely loved it. Scott Adams, what a legend. Check out Dilbert, check out Scott Adams, check out Win Bigley. I've got a background in hypnosis. I'm a trained hypnotist and have been studying persuasion forever. And it's fairly common for people to look at the same data and have completely different interpretations. Um, And if you've studied mass hysterias, as I have, you know that there are lots of examples where people were absolutely convinced that the, the evidence pointed to one and only one thing, only to find out it was completely imaginary. My, my favorite example is the, fav, is the famous McBarton um, school. It was a preschool case. Here in the United States, there was a preschool uh, run by the McMartins who were accused of having a satanic cult in a hidden room beneath the school in which you know, dozens, if not hundreds of children were ritually abused. And there were so many children who had the same story that authorities thought, well, you know, this can't be false. They all have the same story. Has to be true. But it turns out there was no hidden uh, hidden room under the school. And in fact, none of the allegations proved even a little bit true. It was completely made up. Later, they realized uh, experts weighed in for, to, to kind of explain how this could happen. And they explained that when they saw the videos of the law enforcement people interviewing children, the law enforcement people didn't realize how easy it is to convince children to hallucinate. So they would say things, instead of saying, tell us what happened, which might have worked, they say, Billy says that he was abused under the school. What do you say? And then, you know, little Johnny says, yeah, that totally happened. And, and takes it from there. So people at a certain age, you know, kids, they can, they can be easily trained to hallucinate. It doesn't take much effort at all. But we don't really lose that entirely. In fact, we never really lose it. Um, so you can see with the election of Donald Trump that something like half the country thought we had actually literally 
elected the next Hitler. Mm-hmm. That you know his first his first uh, business would be to round up the brown people and and do every bad unimaginable thing. And half of the country said, oh, we finally got somebody who tells the truth and, you know, has some policies we like. Those are not the same movie, uh, but we're looking at the same facts so that the facts don't influence our opinions as much as we imagine they should. Mm. So is there any such thing as some kind of objective reality or are we, or is there no way around us just being in our own, you know, our own movie and our own shitty little story? Um, yeah. Well, well, to, accurate, to answer that question accurately, I would have to be far smarter than I am. So uh, I don't believe the human brain is capable of understanding its reality, and nor does it seem rational that it could, because we didn't really evolve for the purpose of understanding reality. We evolved simply to reproduce. So if you reach the threshold of, yeah, we made more of ourselves you are 100% successful in a biological evolutionary way. And you see that the people who think, you know, Trump is a monster are able to reproduce. And the people who think, oh, he's just good on taxes are also able to reproduce. So so there's nothing about an accurate view of reality that seems to be important to reproduction. And that's ultimately the only test uh, that, that we have of whether something works or doesn't. Did you make more of yourself? Well, whatever you're doing is working. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. And uh, so we've read your book, Win Bigly, absolutely loved, and we've sort of recorded our own sort of 30-minute uh, recap of, of our favorite bits of it. And you talked about the idea of the persuasion filter and that everyone was looking at either Trump as finally someone telling the truth or here's this monster. And you saw it as uh, he wasn't a politician by any means and he was bringing all these other skills that he'd developed uh, throughout his his life and applying it to this realm of bringing a, a flamethrower to a stick fight. And can you, right. <laughs> we're hoping you, for you to give us a, a few examples and a bit of an explanation about what made it so easy and that you talk about the cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias. I, I reckon you do a better job at explaining it than, than we did. Okay. Well, I'll tell you the, the first moment that I realized that there was something special going on with candidate Trump was his response to the Rosie O'Donnell uh, or the, the question about his bad behavior to women, bad things he said, actually. Um, any other politician would have been done that day. That, mm. that would have been the end of their campaign. But what he said was only Rosie O'Donnell, if for those who remember that moment. So instead of focusing on the question or giving anything that looked like an answer to it or even doing what a standard politician does, they simply change the topic to something good they've done for women, that sort of thing. He didn't do anything standard. He said only Rosie O'Donnell. And in so doing, he sucked all of the energy away from the question and put it on the answer. And the answer wasn't even really a real answer. So by by appeasing his base, they had a negative feeling of this Rosie O'Donnell character. He made them very happy. He bonded with his base. He changed the topic. He took all of the energy out of the room and he made everybody else on stage disappear. And he did that with one move. And then I thought, well... You know, I literally stood up when that happened and walked across the room and stood next to the TV. And I said, this isn't normal. All right. I'm seeing something (laughs) special. But, you know, but even I had to see more confirmation of it. And the the big confirmation came not too long after that, 
when he used his first linguistic kill shot, as I call it, his first nickname, and that was for Jeb Bush. Now, I believe I'm the first person who said, pretty sure I'm the first person in the world, who said the day I heard low-energy Jeb, I said that's the end of Jeb's campaign. That is so devastatingly powerful. Doesn't look like it if you haven't studied this stuff, right? If you're not a not a student of persuasion, it just looks like a funny nickname that doesn't mean much. But I, I tagged it as the end of Jeb's campaign. And if you look at his poll numbers, that was his highest point right before uh, low energy. And then it, it sunk after that. So there was so much skill in coming up with the low energy thing. It wasn't just a rhyming nickname. It wasn't just a clever thing. He, 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 he used the power of contrast because he was so high energy that it was extra devastating because, you know, the contrast was so huge. Um, and it was also something that would be susceptible to confirmation bias, which is you see evidence in the future that reminds you of this thing and solidifies your belief in it. And before I'd heard low energy Jeb, before I'd ever heard those words, I thought Jeb Bush looked like a cool, collected, <laughs> you know, executive exactly the kind of person you'd want negotiating with North Korea. I had no negative feelings about this man whatsoever. But the moment you said low energy, I could never see him at the same again. <laughs> so that level of branding, uh, you just have never seen before. And then you saw that he could repeat it. So he did it with, you know, Lion Ted and uh, Crooked Hillary and, and so on. Now, and each of them follow a, a similar pattern which is their unusual words for the political realm. That's important because the sticky, if you do something unusual, it's stickier. So you don't just say, oh, they're liberals. That's just ordinary. You don't remember that. But low energy, you've just never heard before. Crooked Hillary, you haven't heard that. You know, Lion Ted with an apostrophe, not a G. <laughs> These are all the things that are a little bit different, a little bit wrong, a little bit out of context that make you not be able to look away. Yeah. And his ability to absorb all of the attention is the first half of persuasion. Right? You can't persuade until you have their attention, and he does that like nobody's ever done it. And he does it so well that the other team doesn't even have any energy to persuade. Like they can't even get to phase two because they've got no attention. So th those are just a few of the things. And then, and then we observed more technique later, for example, the wall. When he talked about the wall, he simplified. That's right. You know, this big, complicated immigration question, he, he put it down to two words, and one of them was visual, and it allowed us to imagine whatever wall we wanted to see. It was pretty permissive in terms of what we imagined. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so and now I, I, I think he's visiting the wall, and he's got prototypes of the wall, and all of these are part of the visual persuasion. You saw when he uh, cut taxes or whatever he was doing with regulations, I guess it was, he showed a photograph of an enormous pile of documents in a room so that you could see they were taller than he was, you know, just an enormous room full of documents. So you don't see visual persuasion this well done uh, from an amateur. This is someone who really, really understands this field. Mm. So he had a, obviously, he brought a, a flamethrower being a master persuader with some of the things you mentioned there, like pacing and leading, anchoring, and strategic ambiguity and so forth. But what what out of these tactics could the everyday person take into their life and, and the most common ones we can use for the you know the average Joe Blow out there? Well, 
For sure, simplification. The, if you can keep your ideas simple, you've got a chance of selling it. And the, the hard part is the simplification always takes you to inaccuracy. If you simplify too much, you're just, you're just factually wrong at a point. But you actually have to go through that point to get to being effective. And that's what, that's what a non-persuader would never do. They would never say, well, I can't simplify it that much because that would just be practically lying. And I'm not a liar. But the, you know, somebody who has, um, let, let's say, a more flexible view of the world, <laughs> so, if, so without getting into the morality or the ethics of it, and let me say as clearly as possible, those things matter. Yeah. I do have morality. I do have ethics. And I do apply them, uh, as, as all of you should. But if we're only talking about the tools, you know, so we understand the tools, sometimes you have to press to a level of simplification that really is better for everyone. It just might not be completely accurate once you've simplified that much. Uh, and as I said, the visual persuasion is always the powerful one because that's the one that controls our mind the most. You know, our visual sense just overwhelms all of our other senses. And so you want to play to that one. And then beyond that, there's sort of a hierarchy of, of uh, you know, what is more persuasive. Uh, depending on the situation, you might use fear. Fear can be very persuasive, but you have to be careful where you use that. It would be really easy to do that in such an unethical way that you know you couldn't you could never explain that later. Yeah. In terms of the greater good, you could never explain it. Um, so those are some big ones. Uh, Win Bigly is is full of tips that are all pretty much all useful for the average person. Yeah, nice. I like the, that simplification. As you say, don't uh, removing some of those details allows people to fill in their own ideas, I guess, and lets them think for themselves uh, rather than you telling them exactly everything. As you say, like the wall, that was very simple. Uh, not a lot of detail in that, and everyone was able to talk about it a lot, think about it a lot. Uh, some of the other two that I, I really liked and I reckon would be most applicable to uh, any argument or discussion is the high ground maneuver uh, and also setting up two ways to win, no ways to lose. Maybe could you give us a, an example of, of one or, or both of those? So my favorite example of two ways to win, no ways to lose was when Iran captured some American uh, sailors and was holding them. Candidate Trump talked about it this way. He said that they better release those those sailors really soon, uh, or else when I'm in office, you know, they, it's going to be hell to pay. Now he created a situation where if Iran released them soon, which they did, he could claim credit, say, well, you know, it's because I threatened them, and that's why they released them. If they did not release them, he could say, this is why you need to elect me, because I'm obviously the toughest one on this point as well as other things. So uh, he found a, a near-term way to win because they did release him. But it would have been a useful, uh, a useful method to say, look, Obama can't even get a few sailors back. Why would you elect somebody who's like him? You know, which was Hillary's proposition, essentially. Uh, so that was good. Uh, the, the high ground maneuver, uh, let me just explain it conceptually. So the high ground maneuver is when you take an argument that's in the weeds and you elevate it to a point where everybody just sort of has to agree. All right. So let me give you an example with, uh, I'll just pick a fresh one, North Korea. The weeds are, uh, they might need nuclear weapons. We can't have nuclear weapons, but they got to have them to survive. But 
Uh, taking it up a level, you would say, in the world of the Internet, you can't have a hermit kingdom that can thrive. And we know that if you let the Internet in, you can't survive either. You have two scenarios in North Korea. One is you, you fail because you haven't let the Internet in and you don't evolve with the rest of the world because you just won't have access to that stuff. Or two, you do let the Internet in and then your system of government will end also. So the big picture is we're talking about the wrong stuff. Your regime is already over. There is, there is no path to a successful North Korea in 40, 50 years. That doesn't exist. And I think, I think North Korea actually understands that. Now, nobody has expressed it the way I just expressed it. But you can see that nobody would disagree with those statements. North Korea isn't going to say, yeah, in 50 years, we're going to have no Internet and we'll be just as good as you guys. They're not going to make that claim. Yeah. Right? And they can't claim that they can let it in and still survive because they know they can't. So uh, that, that's you're always finding with a high ground maneuver, you try to find the, the big picture that nobody can quite argue with. And that makes the details easier to deal with. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty serious example. I think even on a on a small level, as you say, if there's two opposing ideas, uh, pretty much no one wants to budge, no one wants to lose. But if you can come to that high level where you both agree, I think that's a that's excellent persuasion. Uh, one other current example is uh, the steel tariffs, uh, which I believe was pretty recent in the news, and uh, Australia's trying to get some kind of exemption. I believe. I think the the two D checkers level having done some economics at university is you know protectionism is bad and anytime you any kind of tariffs or is making inefficiencies and blah 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 but what's the i'm sure there's a a 3d chess to this somewhere what's the beyond (laughs) beyond the 2d checkers of uh all tariffs are bad what's the 3d chess uh, that trump's playing here you're you're gonna be angry at me when you hear it (laughs) because because it's one of those things that's obvious after you hear it before you hear it, it's completely not obvious. But after you hear it, you're like, oh. <laughs> it's not a trade war. It's a negotiation. Mm. Right? In order to be an effective negotiator, you have to be above everything else. There's one thing you've got to get right, and it's something that President Trump, candidate Trump before that, said explicitly a number of times in public. You have to get this part right. You've got to be able to walk away from a deal. That's it. He's creating a situation where he has changed the psychology of it. Everybody in the world is saying a trade trade war is bad for the United States. Do you know why that's smart for President Trump to engage in something that every single person says is bad for the United States? Because if you're on the other side, you just stop thinking that America is going to bend to your demands. Because America just said... We're going to shoot ourselves in the foot so you don't do this to us. All right? You you want to shoot us in two feet? I will shoot us in three feet before <laughs> I will do that deal with you. All right. So so once you understand that he's he's telling you I will walk away from the table. Yes, I hear you're economists. Yes, I hear how this could go bad. I'm going to do it anyway. Now deal with that reality. Now let's make a deal based on that reality. I just changed your reality. Because the last reality was, no way I'm going to get in a trade deal. Well, well, then we're not going to give you a good deal because you got nothing. You have no leverage. Mm. He just created leverage where there was none. Mm. Uh, look, look, look how he did the same thing with uh, DACA. 
Uh, I don't know if you're following following that. Uh, so the the issue of what to do with the uh, the illegal immigrants, let's call them undocumented because it sounds less racist that way, um, who have been in this country, came here as children, really through no fault of their own. You know, how do you deal with them? Well, we had a situation where they were temporarily covered. You know, they could kind of stay here with a little bit of safety, but not a lot of safety. And he took that away. Now, he had a good reason for taking it away because it really was Congress's job. It shouldn't have been the president's job. So he was very solid on constitutional grounds. But what he did was he created an asset where there was none. So now he created fear that something would happen to these people and that the Democrats would be responsible for the outcome. Both of those things are true, but they weren't true until he changed the equation. So if you see everything he does under a negotiation sort of framework, a lot of the things that look crazy or mean stop looking that way. So, for example, if you said to yourself, well, he just keeps doing crazy, mean things, you'd say, oh, my God, we better do something right away for these DACA people because he's going to start shipping them back. If you understand it as negotiation, you say, hold on, even he doesn't want to ship them back. <laughs> but 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 he does want to create a situation where that's that, that risk is real in people's minds, real enough that they have to deal with it. Hmm. So you'll see him do that all the time. He creates an asset where there was none. Yeah, yeah it sounds... Let, um... me, let, me, let, let me give you another example of that. Yeah. So the big breakthrough in North Korea, in my opinion, is that he went from a a competition between countries, which included, you know, China as part of the part of the negotiations, and it wasn't working. Didn't work for decades. You know, that approach didn't work. So he turned it into a war against individual companies that were breaking the blockade. Because you can go after an individual company that the UN has said don't trade with North Korea, and everybody says, well, even the UN's on the same side as that. And he knew as a business person that he didn't have to stop all of the companies. He could just get enough of them so that the ones who didn't get stopped say, whoa, that risk is now no longer a good economic risk. Right. So in doing that, by by squeezing their economy in a way that nobody ever squeezed it, going after individual individuals and companies, never been done before, which he set up by doing um, by being very friendly with China and giving them plenty of time to solve it their own way and on their own schedule. Mm -hmm. uh, he did that publicly and kept saying, you're not getting it done, but we think you can do it, China. Keep going, China. China, you're great. I love your leadership. You're great, China. Keep going. <laughs> now, 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 when China did not produce, we were at really good relationships with them at mm -hmm. that point. And at that point, the president had created an asset that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And that asset was a free pass. He built a free pass for himself. And that free pass is nobody can say we didn't give China first, first try, second try, third try. Nobody can say we rushed them. Nobody can say anything about how we did this. Now it's up to us. And we're going after these individual companies. And guess what? Some of them are going to be Chinese. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. you, can, you can get mad at us for going after Chinese individuals and companies, but you're going to have to explain to the world why you didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And you haven't seen China getting mad at us for going after any Chinese entities. Silence. Right. Be probably because they're OK with it um, on some level or they just don't want to complain. So here again, time was against the United States and North Korea. 
because they were building nukes. And the longer we went, the longer we delayed. It was just better for them, bad for us, better for them. He changed it by changing the economics to the point where time is unambiguously on our side. That's a created asset. Um, And the the experts are saying that they might run out of hard currency, that they do all their you know, black market and, and payola and stuff, maybe by October. So I had predicted, um, I literally predicted on my on Periscope the morning before South Korea's uh, announcement that, that North Korea was getting friendly and talking about denuclearization and wanted to meet. That very morning, I said, the situation is formed where something's going to happen far more quickly than you expect. Mm. And it happened by that afternoon. Now, if you are a trained persuader and you can see and you're also a trained negotiator, as I am, I also negotiated for a living for a while, um, you can see this the situation forming as clearly as anything I've ever seen. Uh, and the only thing you have to wonder about was, is Kim Jong-un sane and is he, a, is he like a competent actor? And in my opinion, all signs show he is mm. maybe a little bit brutal. We think so, but almost certainly is. Let me give you another high ground maneuver here. This, you know, this one's future looking. I'm sorry if I'm going on too long. Here. No, I love it. <laughs> Just raise your hand if you want to cut me off. The uh, you probably know of the situation with Otto Warm Beer. He was the young man who North Korea had held as a captive because he, I don't know, stole a poster or something. Uh, but when he was returned to the United States, he was brain damaged and died soon after because he had been so poorly treated in prison. Now, there are a lot of Americans who say, wait, until until you fix that, we can't make a deal with you with North Korea. You know, somehow you have to apologize. We have to do reparations or I'm not sure what would make people happy. But they hold that as like a problem that North Korea has to fix somehow. Here's the high ground maneuver. The high ground maneuver is, what would Otto Warm Beer want us to do? Would he want us to avoid solving the biggest problem in the world and knowing that his contribution, albeit you know unintentional, his contribution made us more resolved to end this one way or another? Part of North Korea's calculation is that Otto Warm Beer's situation made us a little bit irrational. Now they're dealing with somebody who's a little bit irrational and has the biggest nuclear arsenal in the universe, right? That changes their willingness to deal with us. Mm. Otto Warmbier has done his job, and he may have changed the world at least a little bit. You know, his contribution to it is actually moving the world in a place that Otto Warmbier and I'm sure his parents would want us to move, which is denuclearizing. That's the high ground maneuver. Don't let it stop you. Don't get in the weeds. You know, don't, don't worry about these details. There's something bigger, and Otto would want that too. Mm. Absolutely love it, Scott. So there seems to be a lot of stuff going down at the, the 3D level or the high ground in, in this world of uh, persuasion. Is there any big things that you see on a day-to-day basis that the masses are being persuaded or even maybe manipulated uh, and which isn't a positive thing for for individual lives, like say from you know the media or the government or or anything like that at a at a big level. Well, I, I write about something I call list persuasion. List persuasion is you say something like, 
Well, uh, here are the 15 pieces of evidence that President Trump is colluding with Russia. Let's look at them one at a time. Well, there's this one that's speculation. There's this one that's unproven. There's this one that's already been disproven, but you don't agree with it yet. And you can go down the line and you find that you have 15 reasons that he's, you know, as evidence he's colluded, but none of them actually are anything. You know, individually, they mean nothing. But collectively, anybody who looks at it says, hey, with this much smoke, there must be a fire here somewhere, which is literally the, the phrase you heard in the media from the pundits. Was like, with all this smoke, there must be fire. Completely um, blind to it or maybe just ignoring it intentionally, that all of the smoke came from them. It didn't come from the president. Hmm. The president didn't create that smoke. The media did. And then they said, look at all the smoke we created. He must be guilty of something. So uh, you'll see, and, it, and just so it sounds less partisan, you'll see the pro-Trump side doing exactly the same thing with this Uranium One scandal that will never go anywhere. It's like, look at all these things that look suspicious. Well, if you look at any one of them, it's not really that suspicious at all. But there's a lot of them. So it must be true. Look at all that smoke we've created. So whenever you see list persuasion, you, you know, you're having a problem there. Yeah, nice. I've got another uh, a bit of a question for you. In that, you said uh, something along the lines of "In Win Bigly." You know, you're you're running for president. If you create three headlines a week and one is outrageous, that's really really bad. Uh, but if you have thirty headlines a week and all thirty are outrageous, then that's really really good um, in terms of persuasion. But is that is that a good thing to have? You know, thirty outrageous things coming out every week uh you know we had, there was so much outrageous stuff and you know we, we've been saying that you know donald trump yes very good communicator very good negotiator um is there some downside there of having all this outrageous stuff out there yeah let me say the following as clearly as i can to keep other people out of trouble don't try to copy this technique <laughs> <laughs> yes. all right. All right. president trump's technique works only for him because his personality, his risk profile, his background, his ambitions, his priorities, just everything fits for him, All right? He can, he can do, uh, somebody uh, asked me today, am I concerned that his rally speech had uh, two falsehoods every minute or whatever they, whatever they calculated? And I say, how did that affect the GDP? So you have to ask yourself, what are the real world results and do we see do we see the uh, problem of let's say the chaos in the White House? A lot of people are saying it's chaos in the White House. He's firing people and blah blah. Well, that's objectively true. A lot of firings going on more than we've seen normally. But did North Korea not go in the right direction? It did. Is our economy bad? No, it's good. Our jobs good? Yes. So uh, he he's following a process which is very effective for him because job one for President Trump is take all of the energy out of the room, which makes him both more important, gives him more power, and, and removes power from anybody who would be complaining because it's his message that's being promoted. But that is, not, that is not a technique an amateur wants to use. Now, in my case, as I've said before, I have a similar skill stack as a president. I went through the, you know, I've got a degree in economics. I went to a top business school, lots of corporate years where I've done everything from marketing and branding, both corporate and for my own stuff. And so a lot of the things that he does 
I can recognize as being good technique. But if you looked at exactly the same stuff without that background of, of knowledge about persuasion, it would look really scary. And I get that, right? So I get that it looks scary if you don't know what he's doing. So, yeah, don't try that at home. Cool. That was going to be our next question. Is he, is he a, a thought leader we should be looking to emulate? Uh, but I think you've, you've answered that question there. What yeah. does, the, what does uh, the, the next election look like? You know, if Trump's probably involved, but beyond, beyond Trump being involved in another political campaign, have we gone to the point where facts don't matter or will it revert back to the mean of a more traditional sort of political-based campaign? Well, so the trick with that question is whether Trump runs again. If he does, and we don't see, we don't see much changing from the way things are heading, which which might be North Korea looks better, ISIS is still, you know, on the ropes, that sort of thing. I can't see any scenario where he doesn't get reelected. So oh, well. if he runs, if he runs, I would say his second term is close to guaranteed, mm. close to guaranteed. Uh, but. After, after Trump, whether it's this time or, or, or at the end of a second term, the country has a preference for uh, a pendulum. So uh, there's a good chance he'll end up, if he does a second term, with a split Congress because the, the country does like to deadlock stuff. It does like to, you know, if we move too far one way, they like to, to adjust. I, I'm almost certain they'll do the same thing with the president. But as I said, nobody could really duplicate his method. So the odds of getting someone else who does what he does mm -hmm. to do it the way he does it and effectively and get the technique right, it's vanishingly small that we would find that person. So I would expect the next president, no matter which party, to be, if it's a Republican, it's going to be more like a Mike Pence. And if it's a Democrat, I, I just don't know any path they have to winning right now, so it's hard to even imagine. Mm -hmm. Sounds like you might be able to duplicate his his method a bit, Scott. But uh, so what what is next for you? You've you've written a whole bunch of awesome books. Obviously, made Dilbert. So you got experience in the business world and a successful author. So what's what's what are your next projects on the horizon? Well, I I, I kind of drifted into a an accidental role in at least in the United States, in which I feel I. I I present a useful um, way to look at the world that predicts a little bit better than the other ways people are looking at the world. And based on audience response and stuff, I feel as though I can be useful. So, for example, there was this big deadlock in California where California wants to you know, not cooperate with the government on illegal immigration stuff, but the government has the constitutional control. So you've got two sides that can't possibly reach an agreement because California has taken a moral position and they can't say, well, our moral position got inconvenient. So I guess, you know, you guys got to leave. You can't really back off a moral position. And the government has a job as described by the constitution and they can't really back off on that, especially when the leader of the country uh, was elected largely on that, you know, policy of, of being tough on immigration. So I have suggested that there might be a high ground, which is to ask California for a citizen impact report, something that says, yes, this is how we'd like to handle immigration in California. We'd like to, you know, either allow in or not stop X, X thousands of people every year. We'd like to deal with it this way internally. We know there will be this much extra crime, this much extra taxpayer problems, but we'll get some benefits too. 
extra workers, etc. So the president could ask for that report. And then, you know, not one study, you'd want to see a number of studies on different fields and stuff. And he can present that to the country and say, look, my job is to fix this. That's what you elected me for. But it's also true that all of our laws have a human interpretation on top of them by design. That's why we have courts. That's why police can make judgment calls. That's why you're probably not going to get arrested for having a drink one day before your 21st birthday. People make judgment calls. That's how the legal system works. So once we see California's uh, citizen impact report, then President Trump can say, look, it's terrible. I work for the citizens. We're doing this anyway. And then he's got a free pass. If California comes back with an actual pretty good argument, which you know some would find surprising, I'm not sure I would be totally surprised. I think you could make an argument for loose immigration in some cases. But, you know, we'd have to see the argument. If they come back with a good argument, then he's also free to say, well, it is my job to do this, but you didn't elect me just to follow rules. You know, we are a country of judgments on top of a country of rules. And my judgment is that very much like Jeff Sessions is not going after medical marijuana or, or recreational marijuana, there are times when the federal government can step back. And California, you made a good argument. I'm going to step back now. So if he did that, he'd be free to go either direction. He'd be free to step back, which his base won't allow right now because they have no argument for that. There's no argument that says step back. Um, and he would be free to, um, to go ahead and do something if the impact report showed it just made sense. Nice. Uh, so so to, to just put a cap on that, so I'm seeing that I might have some value to the greater conversation in a number of ways because I can frame them in a fresh way. Doesn't mean my framing is the right way. Doesn't mean I have the answers. But every time you add a little bit to the diversity of the of the viewpoints, you you have a better chance of the good ideas bubbling up. Fantastic. And at the back of the book you've got a pretty comprehensive persuasion reading list, which is awesome. We've we've ticked a few of those off ourselves, but we always ask our authors, you know, what, is, what are some of your favorite books or books that you'd most recommend? Well, I would recommend the book Influence by Robert Cialdini and his follow-up book, Pre-Suasion, mm. P-R-E-Suasion. Those two, if you don't have an introduction to the world of persuasion and influence, will just blow the top of your head off because it's all science-backed and you're going to see things that you just didn't think were things. You know, once you learn that if you take your date to a scary movie, she's more likely to fall in love with you, well, it changes everything about how you see the world. (laughs) Uh, So that's great. There's a book called Habit um, that explains how we, you know, our brains are not so rational. We just kind of get locked into habits. That's a good one. I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, uh, which I have covered with something. Um, but I, I would start with those. Yeah, yeah, go nice. with those first. Um, and then maybe Kahneman's Thinking Fast and S- Slow. Mm-hmm. That'd be another one. I'm trying to remember my own persuasion reading list. It's hard, it's hard to remember a list, you know, when, when you're... <laughs> Predictably <laughs> was, irrational was another one as well that, that we've done. That, that was a good one too. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, 
if you just look for the top books in the field of persuasion and influence, you'll, you'll see lots of good ones. There's lots out there right now. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for the, the chat, and we, we look forward to um, diving into a few of your other books as well down the track. And uh, where can people find you and, and keep up to date with uh, your reframing of and putting a, a fresh spin on everything? Well, for my comic and my blog, just go to dilbert.com, um, and that that's easy to find. And for my Twitter, which is where you'll get the periscopes and more of the political stuff, my ID is Scott Adams Says. Fantastic, Scott Adams. Thank you very much. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that interview. We just wanted to remind you, we've read some bloody good books this season so far and you can win them all. Yep. So we've got a, a prize. So there's three ways you can enter this and it is absolute bonanza. Yeah, man, it is a bonanza, you know. <laughs> Seven habits of highly effective people. If you can grow rich, start with why, to name just a few of the 48 books that you can win. So you can firstly uh, fill out the survey at whatyouwillearn.com slash survey. Very short, two minutes. Yep, and you can see that in the show notes of all our episodes. The, the second one is leave a review for us. Yep, we'll find that. And the third way is to just buy a book. Yep. Have a read, send us a picture of the book or the receipt or something at uh, podcast at whatyouwillearn.com and yeah that's it. you can enter three times three yeah, chances three to times win. each time probably maximum three minutes time investment yeah. and you could land 50 fucking good books which you can use to sell or give us gifts yeah good shit